Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, the other arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. We have a lot of listeners, um, not all of which are versed in the history of Bigfoot in general. And, and of course, you are very well versed in the history of Sasquatch and Bigfoot in that particular valley. Um, can you fill the listeners in who may not know a brief summary of like how the Bluff Creek Project came into existence and how that kind of wraps around this film site, you know, the Patterson Gimlin film site oh, yeah. specifically? Yeah. Um, well, it really, for me, it started in the 2003 International Bigfoot Symposium in Willow Creek, where we had all of the guys from the olden days who we could collect, you know, uh, who were still living, um, minus Peter Byrne because, you know, John Green was going. But, uh, you know, a lot of these old-timers who had been to the film site and done primary research there after the Patterson film in 1967, and they couldn't really find the site, you know. there was a lot of disagreement, people going upstream, downstream, looking, um, you know, Daniel Perez, he was pointing at the wrong spot and telling Christopher Murphy and Murphy put it in his book, you know, and they had this theory that the film site had been washed away by uh, storms, you know, it turned out that it wasn't. But um, there were, because of this sort of great confusion of that uh, event, even with Bob Gimlin's sort of recognizing things as Bobo later told me uh, Gimlin kind of identified the, the the spot where he thought they might have first seen the creature and it turned out when we later just did the survey of the site that he was accurate within about you know 20 feet from the actual spot where you know the road would have come out uh, it's, it's pretty uh pretty pretty good memory especially because the uh, the uh, um, the landscape has totally changed, you know, in regards to the creek bed. It's sunk down about nine feet <laughs> below where uh, Roger and Bob would have been standing. When you're down in the creek bed, uh, Roger and Bob would have been at your head level, pretty much, above your head. You know, um, that that part of the film site was washed way but the rest of it remains um but you know the problem was after that i started got to thinking and it just sat in my mind i did a few trips up there to look around and you know i didn't really have good maps just like the weird little sketch map in the john green book you know right and then eventually i i got a hold of the daniel perez booklet and i could see right there on the map like why didn't anybody find the film site when we had Renee de Hinden's mark right on the map, you know? Uh, so at that point is when um, I got more serious, like this, we need to find out what's wrong here. Why can't Daniel find the film site? It's in his book, you know? 
Um, but when I met uh, Ian Carden up at the Yakima Bigfoot Roundup, uh, that's when we got to talking about this. And it turned out he lived in Redding. So we began doing trips up there to find out all that we could, you know, about the local history as it is like on the ground today. Um, the Bigfoot history in particular, you know, uh, so that's when I was contacting you guys, like, do you know where it is cliff? And, you know, like you said, well, the best information is that Perez map. And, you know, Bobo told me that story about Gimlin and we all kind of like, um, we kind of knew that it was there in that, that area where, you know, the big crook in the Creek is, and then the big straight line of the bowling alley, uh, but nobody could actually point to the tree and the stumps and all the artifacts, right? Um, so that's when we had to go and we had to um, disprove all of the other uh, proposed locations, you know, like MK Davis, a quarter mile or more downstream. Well, we yeah, there were like four other locations, at least. Everybody had this idea about their own idea about where the film site actually was. Yeah. And yeah, even Daniel Perez and Christopher Murphy, who were supposed to be experts and, you know, Peter Byrne, who had taken some of the best photographs of Bluff Creek ever, you know, uh, at the site, undeniably, uh, he couldn't remember, you know, we went to where Peter Byrne told us to go. And this, this is not the film site. You know, it's obvious it's on the wrong side of the creek for one, you know, like down there by the bat boxes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so finally we, we just ruled them all out. There were a lot of other loose ends from people's memories having faded, you know, like Al Hodgson was convinced that the film site was way downstream, like not that far from where the concrete bridge is now. Yeah. That messed me up when it, Al, when I was trying to figure out where it was back in the eighties, Al, I, I thought he would know for sure. And I remember just being confused going up and down and then. When I got with Manny, we thought we found the right trees and stumps and stuff, so we figured that was, that was it, and then it turned out that was it. Yeah, that that's, that site was uh, we all went to there was was uh, it was deceptive because it looks so small. Yeah, know? and like um, most people didn't even go up on the um, sandbar. Because they thought that the film site was down in the creek, you know. So, like, you know, like they showed on Finding Bigfoot, you guys are there in the creek bed. That's kind of how a lot of people thought of it. Um, and they they would tell us, you know, those trees don't exist anymore. Those stumps are rotted away. And, you know, well, we were looking for stumps specifically because we thought, you know, well, these old growth wood debris things, they can last a long time. Uh, and sure enough, we saw these piles of, uh, you know, forest debris and vines and junk growing. And we thought, well, what's under that pile there? You know? And so we pulled up the plants and sure enough, there's stumps under there. Um, and we cleared all that sort of crappy um, undergrowth away from the stumps. And that's when we realized, you know, this looks this looks like the film. You know, there's a big fat stump and a tall stump and some ones over there. And um, 
you know, we looked behind us and the, uh, there were the big trees behind, uh, off to the, what we thought was way off to the side, but, um, you know, we had been kind of fooled by seeing the two dimensional plane of the, uh, film and not knowing that, ex- uh, that expansive perspective depth that was in there hidden behind, you know, the apparent flatness of the image. And, you know, also the image like Christopher Murphy's diorama, we kept thinking it was like a square, you know, that like the action all happened in a square. Uh, <laughs> but that's just frame 352. You know, what really happened is Patterson's running up the creek and he's still he's holding the camera filming and he runs across the creek. The the the, the view goes away from the subject altogether. You know, he was facing towards the west, the northwest, when he started. And then he comes back out of the creek and he gets the camera back up and he's starting to face north. And then, you know, as the as the creature subject moves across the plane of the film, he has to shift two or three times after that to get a, another view. And then he's eventually filming towards almost the east of the of the site so you know that film action is what was hard to uh really understand without having good quality images of the film um you know back then i'm sure you might remember it was hard to get anything decent uh the footage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you had to be on the inside like you had to secretly get it from Rick Knoll or uh, <laughs> Christopher Murphy had these, or Peter Byrne had one, you know, so forth. Oh, and you guys, that, that final piece, weren't you the guy that was responsible basically for us getting that fourth, uh, the negative reel of the footage? That was, that was thanks to you, pretty much, wasn't it, Steve? Uh, yeah, the, finding Bigfoot kind of angered me a little in that whole process, but. Um, what had happened is just, uh, I was in my store, some, a faithful customer of mine had been over at the, uh, museum here, the local Willow Creek China flat museum that has the Bigfoot collection. And he said, you should go over there and check this out uh, or call the lady. Uh, She said, somebody just donated like, you know, 26 boxes of material having to do with Bigfoot and other cryptozoological things. And, you know, I kind of asked, what the heck is it? And he said, well, she said, like, there's some Loch Ness monster stuff in there. And I got to thinking. So I called the lady at the museum and talked, and she um, described to me a few more things. And I said, you know, what this has to be is the Eric Beckjord collection, (laughs) you know, John Eric Beckjord. Huh. The, the notorious um, bizarro woo squatcher who I think almost single-handedly invented the blob squatch. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> I mean, but he also had those other theories like Patty was a robot from outer space or something. She made out of titanium. Pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that collection is from Beckjord and uh, you know, the Finding Bigfoot wanted to have uh, um, 
Bill Munns do like an investigation with you guys. So they got Bill Munns in there and uh, he went through as much as he could, I guess. And I was outside hanging out at that point. And um, they found that one film reel that had the negative transfer, uh, which means it was a very early copy. You know, um, the uh, my understanding of the photography of this is that Kodachrome was a color positive film. So the camera original is already in color and in proper orientation. It's not a negative, you know? It, mm -hmm. So um, to make copies, they would make it into a negative co transfer copy and then make the color copies from that, you know, after that so it was an intermediary stage actually before the first gen copies apparently it's almost um, like it's two steps away from the original so even first gens are almost kind of second gens yes well um if i understood bill munns correctly i mean it was highly distracting trying to talk with him in that big crowd but, oh, I bet. Uh, but uh, and they were starting to you know get ready to film the town hall meeting thing but uh yeah Munns told me this like it, it was meant to be a copying intermediary so why would you take a a negative re reproduction of a copy you know the only way it would be useful is to take it from the color positive state and make it into a negative which is how you make normal color uh print copies so um that that must be it. It must be the the most primary copy that there is <laughs> from the original. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because like I, you know, I'm not a photography expert, but that's what Munns said to me, uh, if I understood him correctly. That's how I, I understood it. That's more than yes, I got so out of it. Yeah, <laughs> I would like I would like to see what Munns has, but you know, so much of what he has is. Um, it's kind of for research purposes only, right? He made that agreement with Patricia Patterson, you know, the widow, uh, to to not distribute these things. Um, so, I mean, it's sad. I, I'm still waiting for a real high-grade copy of the Patterson film after all these years. Um, well, those uh, digitizations, those 4K digitizations that are out there aren't half bad. Yeah, I didn't like it, though. You no. know what? Th there's the first video that guy put out. He explained how he made that 4K thing. Um, and what he did was he took uh, a clip off of YouTube wow. from one of the documentaries. And you know how you know, all those documentaries are using weird questionable copies of the film i mean some are so bad they look green some look blurry you know some are stabilized some aren't and you know some have a brownish color and others other images you see are wonderful beautiful fall foliage of bluff creek i mean so good some of the stuff like john green had uh you can see the color of the creek in the first frame of the film is blue-ish. It's bluish colored. You know, you never see that in one of those lousy MK Davis uh images that he 
used to use to support the massacre theory. Um, is this copy of the water's red? Yeah, red, bloody <laughs> pools with corpses in them, no less. But uh, yeah, so I'm, you know, I know that the film looks really good, and if you've noticed, Jeff Meldrum has totally high quality images that he uses in his presentation. Yeah. Uh, there was their sublime, you know, if you've ever been in Bluff Creek in the fall, it's just an astonishing display of foliage everywhere. The colors of the film are actually like that. They're rich, textural, uh, delicious looking colors, you know, Kodachrome, the famous uh, Kodachrome. And it's decidedly less blurry than people think it is. Uh, it's actually a pretty good film if you can get to those stable parts of it. You, you saw where they, they think they found the original back in Atlanta and it was all messed up. Atlanta? Uh, you mean Florida, right? That that okay. one? I've talked with that guy extensively and a lot of people think he made it up as a hoax. But um, I, I know he's a skeptic. Well, he's a hardcore skeptic. You know, he used to believe in like he felt betrayed by the Bigfoot community. So he, he he was working with MK Davis on the Massacre Theory movie and all that jazz. But uh they had a falling out and this guy John Johnston Johnson. John Johnson. Uh he's a film expert of his own kind. He's a photographer and he kind of followed um an ad to an estate sale that spoke of having like old film uh, reels and uh, cameras and uh, um, model airplanes, you know, those kind that you could fly with their own little engine. Yeah. Um, he's into that kind of stuff. So he went to this estate sale. It turns out it was an, a lawyer, and the lawyer claimed his family, he was in a, in a hospice or something, you know, ill health. So they were selling off the estate uh, while he's still alive or in the process of passing away. Um, and they, he got, um, this lawyer was apparently Patricia Patterson's lawyer or, um, had worked for somebody against Patricia Patterson, um, trying to get like some kind of money payment. These are the kind of two stories that I heard that there's the connection there, as you might've heard over the years, uh, you know, Peter Byrne actually went to Florida on the word that the original film had resurfaced after it had apparently been in uh, the American National Enterprises film company bankruptcy. And it was in an auction in Florida. Um, but Peter Byrne could never find it. You know, so maybe it wasn't in the auction. Maybe this lawyer purloined it out of the uh, assets. And uh, he had kept it all these years, and it, uh, along with two other reels that said A N E A N E written on the canisters in uh, pen. So, and the other one, the film canister said Bluff Creek, um, nineteen sixty seven on it. He he grabbed this just randomly out of uh, a box at an estate sale and. He took it home and uh, opened it up. It was a big canister, and inside were two medium-sized rolls 
and one small roll that was the size of the Kodak K100 camera, you know, the, the small five minute or so roll of film that fat fit into that little handheld camera. That's what Patterson used. So he immediately thought, Oh my God, this, this, this has got to be the original film. And, you know, he had it uh, analyzed by an objective third uh, party, a non-interested third party uh, film expert and got the opinion that it, it was a camera original, but it was highly degraded uh, due to climate or whatever, uh, but also due to chemical exposure because the other two reels in the film canisters were almost certainly a copy of the Roger Patterson, Aldi Atley documentary movie that they made combined with the BBC footage and stuff. You know, that story. Uh, so mm -hmm. this film, the films in that, those two canisters were highly degraded and he opened it up and there was an immediate wash of chemical smell, uh, this horrible chemical and sulfurous kind of smell and the the film was actually crumbling into pieces so it might have been that that um stuff had actually exposed it through the little cracks in the canisters you know they're not perfectly airtight but it had damaged the other film which i mean if it's kodak coda color film correctly developed it should not degrade so easily but um he's now holding on to this film and not publishing it you know it's it's um, in a fragile state so you can't project it he t had a segment of it taken out and the only way to analyze it was to cut it into pieces and carefully lay like the dead sea scroll or something you know lay out all of the uh pieces um sequentially on a light board um and then they could view what it was and it was bluff creek sandbar then there's a little bigfoot walking and he knew immediately what he had uh the only question is did he fake it you know or is it real is it really the camera original because you know anyone in the in the bigfoot world knows that we've been looking for that darn thing forever Right. Yeah. Well, at least since 1980, apparently, uh, uh, Rene DeHinden and what was his name? Bruce Bonney, uh, Cliff, you, you know, his name, the guy who helped write his book. No, the Cibachrome Prince. Oh, you know, I, you know, names are not something I retain very well. That's why I write things down. So I can't help you on that one. I think it's, it was Bruce Bonney is his name. He and Rene DeHinden went to a film archive in L.A. And it had somehow gone there, according to the story. Uh, what they thought was the first uh, camera original, not a first-gen copy, but a camera original. And supposedly, um, you know, this is where they got those Cibachrome prints. The, they're a sequence of, what, 10 or 12? Uh, very colorful, very uh, clear uh, enlargements of the film subject. Um, you see these in like Renee's, well, no, who, who had them in the book? Uh, Bayanov's book has them. and uh, Oh, the, um, the Help and the Names book has it as well. 
Oh yeah, yeah. That um, Murphy, mysterious Man-like monsters, monsters on trial. Trial, yeah. Um, and they're yeah, they're in Christopher Murphy's book to the know the Sasquatch or meet the Sasquatch has it. But those are, I mean, they're considered, I guess, to be the highest quality. Oh yeah. Uh, some of the reproductions of them, though, unfortunately, in the books are not of the highest quality. Um, but uh, yeah, in person, apparently, they look really pristine. Um, you know, um, I was just shared a. I have a frame of one of them, actually two of them, um, that I got permission from Eric DeHinden to use, and that's so why I wrote to Bill Munns, and he he sent me uh, the best quality frame of those particular frames I was looking for. Um, I'm going to blow it up to life size in for the for the North American Bigfoot Center uh, for one of our displays. We're, we're expanding a little bit in the museum, and, and I'm going to expand the Patterson Gimlin fr- uh, film display a little bit. And I got Eric DeHinden's permission to use it. Um, you know that uh, the the exercise you've seen in Krantz's book, and I think Murphy did it as well, where uh, the Patterson Gimlin subject is walking away from the camera and the foot is up because the, of their inhuman gait. The bottom of his foot goes. Those are like awesome. Yeah, those are fantastic. So what I'm I'm doing is uh, I'm blowing that picture up until the the length of the foot is the same size as the cast of that foot, and I'm going to mount the cast on the on the picture itself so everybody can see that you know the the footprint yeah. cast is the same size, and therefore the creature should be about that same about the about life uh, size. Um, you know, just on your computer screen, you can take the footprint, uh, the track right. past, and it assume that's a standard real footprint of this film subject. It's 14.5 inches long. So, you know, assuming there's going to be some movement of the foot and stuff, you don't know for certain. There's a margin of error in there of, a, of an inch or two at least, you know, uh, or more. But you take 14.5 inches and you can line it up because, you know, the foot is right there in the same plane of the back of the creature. Right. So you got that and you can measure how tall it is. It's about six feet tall. Yeah, yeah. It's not as big as uh, the whole glickman nasty sort of thing. The North yeah, 7.4 and like 1,350 pounds or whatever he said. Yeah, there, I mean, I, I had dinner with Franzoni earlier in the week, as I mentioned, and he brought that up again. I just didn't want to bring it up that that, that has to be wrong. I'll just say really quickly, uh, you and I and all of us have stood on the film side with Bobo. And if you compare him to the, the surrounding stumps and trees, he looks about the right height. Mm-hmm. You know, six, yeah. Months, six, four, six, six. Yeah, and, you know, Bob Hieronymus, the guy who claims he's in the suit, he um, is apparently six foot two. So, I mean, theoretically, um, he's about the right height if you consider there might have been some. I thought he said five, nine, five, ten. 10. I don't know. As I've heard six, two. But um, yeah, uh, there's some debate about it. <laughs> no doubt, uh, always there is debate about it. But you know the reason I'm doing this life-size thing, the uh, the uh, exhibit or the the display, is because I, she isn't that tall. And uh, frankly, I don't think most Bigfoots are. Um, I'm kind of alone on that. But uh, uh, she's not that tall, but she's sure is damn big. She's real big, actually, like left to right yeah. and front to back. So, and that's the reason I'm doing this uh, life-size display. It's to really drive that home with the people at the museum. Um, yeah. 
I think most Bigfoots are actually quite a bit smaller than they're estimated at. It's definitely broad and and in the shoulders and the the frame. I mean, uh, it doesn't have to be tall, taller than human. You know, these are part of the arguments that people always made trying to prove the Patterson film is real. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll go on and on about how the arms are too long or the thing is too big or just too massive. I mean, just look at it, they say, you know. But uh, when you when you consider, you don't have to make those kind of arguments. It, it, it's okay for Bigfoot to be the size of a human. Or, you know, maybe its feet are bigger, it's more bulky, there's some anatomical differences, but it's reality or whatever doesn't depend upon it being different from a human, like a monster, no. you know, with no, no, they, that whole giant thing is blown out of proportion. Yeah. And I think it's unnecessary. Uh, you know, the, the fact is its arms are not swinging down below its knees and it does contain an anatomically correct digital human skeleton model quite nicely right in the middle of the Patterson film. You can move it around and it proportions are basically the same as human. Well, Bigfoot is a human of some kind. I mean, not um, homo sapiens, but right. I mean, it's, it's gotta be more closely related to us, our kind of ape than the other apes, like the chimpanzee, which is our closest relative. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty vocal about, uh, I'm not, at least I'm not bashful about being on the paranthropist train. I think that these things yeah. are australopithecines, the robust australopithecines that went, that got big because they lived in cold areas. I think it's that simple. That's and still closer to us than the chimps. Like, yeah, we've oh, yeah. had this conversation, and I'm agreeing with you. I think if it's homo, whatever the heck, it has to be quite a bit before homo erectus, you know? Because Erectus had fire and tools and f- complex, you know, technologies for hunting and things yeah. that we don't really see Bigfoot having in almost all the reports. No, you got to look at the behaviors. And, and I think fire and fashioning and using tools, those are too valuable a, a, an adaptation to just discard once you obtain them. So I think you got to look before the first um, hominin to have used those, and the first one that we know for we abs- we're absolutely positive had both those things is Homo habilis, um, very archaic, yeah. very primitive, you know, flavor of hominins. And before that, you have this huge array of australopithecines. That and yeah, some of those probably use tools, but none of them use fire to our knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am I am totally agreeing with you. I think. It, it might not even be uh, Australopithecine, but, you know, it would have to be like a paranthropus because... Yeah, which is an Australopithecine, by the way. That's just a different branch yeah, of them. More, Yeah, but they seem like more robust and ape-like uh, if I have been looking at the right pictures, you know, in the in the books. They keep changing what they think they look like, but... Well, yeah, yeah, they definitely are. The, the two main branches of Australopithecines, there's a gracile branch and a robust branch. Yeah. Uh, and Australopithecus robustus are so different that some people have adapted the use of a different um, genus name, Paranthropus, instead of, uh, instead of Australopithecine. Yeah, okay, well, that, I guess that's what I was looking at. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, 
I think Bigfoot is definitely close to humans, regardless, you know. Uh, but obviously, it, it's not a modern human uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, if it exists, it can't be. I mean, it just isn't. Yeah, yeah, it just isn't. Exactly. But and he, too many anatomical differences as visible in the Patterson Gimlin film. Well, there are there are some anatomical differences there. Yeah. Um, mostly in the form of, you know, I would say the face. The, I, I the go for face. the face. Yeah. Yeah. The face is pretty yeah. compelling. The back is wider than most humans. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of humans that kind of look more like Patty than others. Right. But, uh, um, I think it's just roughly, you know, you could say roughly it could be a man in a suit or it could be a very close human relative. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paranthropus and the Australopithecines are pretty darn close to us when you consider, though it's a long ways back, it's not, you know, quite that ancient compared to a lot of other animals on the planet. No, and they persisted a long time. If, if my memory serves, the most recent Paranthropus uh, fossil that we have is less than a million years old. It's like 800,000 years old. Yeah, and a million, yeah, less than a million you're talking about. Not that long ago, (laughs) when it comes to life on Earth, which is in the billion range. Yeah, like four and a half. So a lot of life on Earth was just God, uh, you know, paramecians and amoeba and whatever (laughs) crazy creatures floating around in the soup. Um, It took a long while just to get that first, like, courageous animal to come up on land. Yeah whatever it was, the fish-like creature thing. Hey, so obviously the Patterson-Gimlin film is, 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 is pretty good evidence as far as you're concerned. You know, it's not, it doesn't, you know, seal the deal, nothing to take to the bank or anything like that, but it's pretty good. You seem to be rather impressed by it. Um, are there other pieces of evidence that you also find very compelling that kind of help you keep on going on this crazy journey of Bigfooting that we all are on? Mm-hmm. Well, that's part of it, my answer. But I will say that, you know, the, the thing that I find most intriguing about the Patterson film is not that it proves either way. It's that it's so am, um, ambiguous that it, it can't. It, it's almost too good to be true. And it's almost uh, absurd, too absurd to be true at the same time. And I, I love that. I love the fact that it's something that can sit in the middle of uh, proof and falsity, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's that, I think it's that that explains the power of that film. Um, and I can watch it and I, I see parts of it where I'm just sitting there. Oh my God, you know, I'm floored by how real it looks. And then at other times I'm just like, what's with the butt, you know, like what, what's that thing moving at the top of its thigh there, you know? Um, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in that film. And I mean, that's partly why I'd love to see a full high resolution scan of the thing produced and released uh, by Munns and Patricia Patterson, hopefully, you know. Uh, it's like I don't want to pay money for it. They no, should no. put it out themselves. No, I and, mean, and Bill said that he needs 10 grand to do it. But it's with the cops. Uh, but that's to put out a 
That's the fee that she charges to put it into a documentary. No, no, no. He said um, that it would cost him, like, time-wise. Yeah, because we, we wanted to do a, a DVD with Bill Munns that was like that, too. And he's always sort of, well, I made the agreement with Patricia. You know, so it's like, oh, bummer. But, uh, you know, it once that is done, if it's a frame-by-frame scan it'll be pretty hard for them to keep the genie in the bottle anymore. You know, like back in the day when you could barely see anything from the film and uh, DeHinden was suing Patricia Patterson with Bob Gimlin, you know, on his side, trying to get the rights that Gimlin deserved uh, back to him. Um, that whole period where DeHinden wouldn't let... Uh, Krantz used the images in his book. I mean, how crazy. I remember like getting back into Bigfoot and you couldn't even see the darn thing, you know? Um, okay. I mean, like, to answer your other question, like, I'm glad there are some other things, Cliff, that uh, are pretty good. And I can list a few, but, but Bobo, you're going to say something? I forgot. I said something smart. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those cloaked smart statements that has the same powers as Bigfoot does. Um, Objective power. You could get back into that, but you should be careful that you don't want to get me started on the difference between epistemology and ontology. Uh, oh, let's, get, let's, get, let's get it on. You know, the, the one of the things I when I'm looking at the evidence is it's stuff that initially impressed the hell out of me back in the day. And I look at that track. That's so real. You know, the Jerry Croup tracks, they still look real to me. But um, on closer study, a lot of them start to look fake. You know, um, you start to learn things about guys like Ray Wallace or, uh, say, even um, our old friend Freeman, you know, um, Paul Freeman. Yeah. Why is his name slipping me? Uh, you know, Freeman's famous video is, I think, obviously the second best. And it looks pretty darn good to me. Uh, but it's a horrible quality VHS tape camera thing from the, you know, probably made in the 70s or whatever. Um, so it's, you can't really analyze it like you can the Patterson film. Right. And, there are a few other cool pictures and stuff, but the more you scratch at the sacred cow, the more it, you know, stinks like BS, right? I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> twisted metaphor. <laughs> Speaking of BS, okay, you know, something like that. Who are, who are the biggest perpetrators right now, in your opinion, since you guys, this is what you guys do is bust hoaxers and stuff. Who's the most egregious examples that you can think of right now because i dude i get people sending me fake stuff all the time that someone else posts let's stir the pot a little bit here strudy let's get things jumping you, just, you should post those on the coalition group you know i mean i've not kept strict records but i think we've never been wrong <laughs> like um, as far as it goes in an analyzing whether something is a hoax if we've con consensus wise said this is a hoax and this is why I think we've been right about every single one of them. And of course, you know, it's an endless supply of them, but I mean, if you're talking hoaxes in terms of evidence, there's yeah. your Rick Dyer types, you know, who make fake suits and fake videos and 
pretty much anybody can do that now with their cell phone camera. Right. Um, and a great number of the things that we constantly get presented to us, you guys probably see more than I do even, you know, I'm looking at it all the time and I see them every day. So I, it's hard to imagine what the stuff you guys have been sent. It but, takes uh, effort to ignore it. I'll tell you that. Yeah. But I'm, you know, a lot of people are, they call me up and they say, can you get Bobo's number to me? So I can send him my picture. I mean, I'm not kidding how many times I've I had to say no to that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, like, um, you know, you can take your buddy wearing a black hoodie and dark colored pants and um, walk them through a dark part of the woods and they'll look like a Bigfoot. Uh, you know, that that stuff you constantly see, like that leaping Yeti video that came out of Russia. They presented it with a low resolution video on YouTube. It looked like a, a a hairy yeti creature running and jumping, but uh, in the better quality original, which we finally found, uh, <laughs> you can see the clothes on it. It's a yeah. man. He's got like a white hat and a purplish shirt and. Uh, bluish purple shirt and uh, gray pants. You know, and so if you mess with the video enough and you don't even have to fake the video, you just record people and they're going to look like Bigfoot. You know, that's one of the things I appreciate about you guys, you know, I, that um, is that, well, you guys are willing to take anybody to task. And I, I like that. I think that's funny, uh, including me, by the way. I know that uh, some people have tossed my name around in very various ways on your board over the last few years or five years or something. But um, if I, I there's only one of me, you know, so people ask me all that. Well, what about this? And it's like, well, God, I don't know anything about that. And but the thing is, since I'm a kind of a high profile Bigfoot person. They expect me to know about every single thing that comes out and have and, and and have an opinion on it. And they expect me to be right, you know, which I yeah. think is a pretty high expectation for a guy like me, you know, yeah. you to be very open minded about a lot of these that, um, you know, I might be more inclined to say that's fake. But, um, <laughs> well, if, if sometimes if I need to know something, I can, I can actually, you know, find my way to your Facebook page, which is not easy for me. My Facebook's all screwed up, but if I find my way there, um, maybe I can find something about it if it's a recent thing. And it's like, well, gosh, right. I, here's a team of, of, of skeptics willing to make mincemeat out of anything thrown their way. If they can't come up with anything wrong about it, then maybe there's something to it. I like to think we're like the Socratic gadfly to the Bigfoot community. You know, we're there to get people to up their game. You know, if you can't get this stuff past us, a bunch of free time amateurs, you know, online on Facebook group, then how are you ever going to get it past science? You know, the scientists in the universities who are scoffing at us right now, you know, you got to up your game. You've got to get better evidence. You've got to get rid of all these stupid theories that are based on nothing. You know, if you want to make a speculative statement, at least say you're speculating. <laughs> you know, um, if you're going to talk about Bigfoot, it, it helps to say things like if it exists, you know, because that's the primary question still for the mainstream world. 
the um, Bigfoot knower, Bigfoot believer, they're in a different category. And, um, you know, I think that's all good and fine for them. But, you know, it's it's not useful in terms of advancing knowledge or science. I mean, if you think Bigfoot is a human, fine, you know, but please don't say it's a Nephilim fallen angel hybrid with some proto um, hominid that mated with a human modern female in Spain, you know, and has genetics that have never been seen before in any other animal, you know, that is biologically, scientifically implausible. I mean, not only... um, because, you know, why would a Nephilim have DNA? Uh, because they're supposed to be angels, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the spiritual world. Um, but, you know, like, how, how are you proposing that it is separate from the animal kingdom? Like, we know that all of life on Earth is related. If you go back far enough, there's probably one, you know, one occurrence of life being generated on Earth. Um, I mean, there could have been multiple occasions, but, uh, you know, you can't go. That's like the big bang. You can't really go back that far. But the thing is, it's we're all related. Look at the skeleton of a whale. You know, if you see one mounted in a museum, they have hands that have the same bones that we do. And it's a it's a fish like mammal that lives in the ocean that once was quadrupedal. You know, and I don't think it does any good to blissfully remain in ignorance about the things that science shows us, you know, evolution, that's real, you know, and um, the stuff of religion, well, it it might be real in some ways, but it's not, it's not going to speak to uh, biology. You know, you can't do modern physics with the Bible. You got, you got something else going on there, which is like cultural, literary, mythological things. Stephen Jay Gould, uh, he had the idea of a uh, separate magisteria. You know, the domain of science is different from the domain of religion, yeah. and they are separate. And in the same way, your personal inner experiences are separate from what we might be able to communicate objectively to each other about physical reality things, you know, or energy and physics and chemistry. Um, these are things that are different from how I feel or what I might see in my dreams. And I, I think what it, the the category of hoaxer that is a real problem in Bigfoot nowadays is the woo hoaxer, the the self hoaxer, uh, the one who makes up these things just out of their own self, or they hear about it from, you know, some guy like Kiwoni or Beckchard was talking back in the seventies. And somehow it got into Matt Johnson's head. This dude has made up a whole religion about it now. They came from a dying planet through a portal that he held open with some Tesla machine that this guy built, like a Radio Shack kit off of YouTube videos. And oh, I, I met that guy, by the way. Yeah, he I've, he's come up to my table a couple times at Bigfoot conferences. And I go, oh, I'll be darned. Yeah, he told me about what he was into. And I, 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 I had not read Dr. Johnson's book despite he gave me one, I really should read it out of respect yeah, for him, honestly. But um, yeah, I bet that guy to go. I'll be darned. Very revealing, not <laughs> of Bigfoot, but of him, uh, of his own sort of solipsistic, narcissistic worldview, uh, that Bigfoot all emerged out of his mind, that it, Bigfoot all mirrors Matt Johnson back to himself. 
and impresses his followers just like a cult leader does, you know, um, whether he actually believes in it or not is debatable. But um, I'm not coming out and saying he's a con man, but I mean, I think it's totally possible that he's just doing this to have control and power over people. Mm. Um, whether he could believe such ludicrous and insane things, I don't know. I mean, people believe a lot of weird stuff, you know. They find reason to think that the world is flat, right? The planet is flat. Well, it's spherical. It's not flat. I checked it out. Yeah, you've been around it a few times. <laughs> uh, what does your group think about the tree destruction video from like Mississippi about five years ago, where it's tearing apart a tree in the swamp and then it stands up and the guy runs? Oh, the, yeah, the he's tearing into like a cedar tree or whatever. Yeah. That is one of the better ones uh, for sure. Uh, a lot of people um, like that one a lot. You know, it's kind of like the Leaping Yeti video, though. The resolution's not quite there to say for sure that it's not a guy wearing a hoodie. Um, some people say that they see like a shape of a backpack on it, you know. Oh, yeah. um, and I don't think that the actions of that creature in the video are so unusual that a human couldn't do them. If you look at the behavior of the cameraman, it's not convincing. You know, he's just sitting there like um, he's not freaking out or anything. And he watches this this creature that doesn't ever pay any attention to him, even though he's like mumbling to the camera and stuff. And um, then he all of a sudden it turns and he runs away. You know, The classic thing where you see his camera jostling around and he's ditching. Uh, it just doesn't convince me. Um, and I think, you know, the the subject would have known he was there. Right. A wild, wild animal. I, I can't imagine him getting that close to a Bigfoot or a bear or anything and not being uh, seen. I mean, he's not hiding in the brush. He's standing there with pretty open um, forest, you know, swampy forest, but. Uh, you know, the thing that it does, it tears wood off that tree. Well, who's to say that the tree wasn't like rotten in that one area uh, or even a partly, you know, dead. Uh, and he's just in there tearing off uh, whatever, you know, for fun or, or for some other reason that we don't know. Um, maybe the guy just set it up to make it look like Bigfoot or maybe he was filming his buddy and said, hey, that looks like Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I, I think a lot of these hoaxer types, um, they just uh, stumble upon their hoaxes, you know, just like the blob squatchers film random forest and they find uh, faces or a shadowy Bigfoot shapes. And they think that's that's real. You know, I didn't see it when I was there, but it's look at it. It's got eyes and a nose. And uh, regardless, I mean, you could stare at a pizza and you could see faces in that if you do it long enough. Right? <laughs> no, not me. No, it's not going to last that long. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, um, I was going to say that like, when I got fooled by that guy with the picture we looked into down Avenue, the Giant Shot episode, and it was uh, a guy that turned out just taking pictures. He was taking pictures, and later on, he thought it looked like a Bigfoot, and he fooled. Then for some reason, he ran with the hoax, and I fell for it. 
Oh well, yeah. Any, anybody who's been bigfooting for any time at all will have fallen for hoaxes at some point or another. Hopefully we can just find out later we're wrong and correct it. Yeah, I'd love to have fallen for something that's real. But I mean, you're not risking much by gambling and saying that's a hoax. Because no. certainly the things that you see are either hoaxes or mistakes. Um, but uh, that thing that was in the Redwoods, I mean, he knew that showed up in Finding Bigfoot. He knew, he had to know that that was a stump. And, you yeah. know... I guess it was Robert Leiterman who saw like the piece of the road. It was. And he's like, this is right next to the road. You know, this is not a Bigfoot. And he found the stump on the show there. And um, I mean, you could see how it could look like a Bigfoot under the right uh, circumstances. <laughs> yeah, right. The right, that right chemical mixture will make you see all sorts of stuff, right? Oh, yeah. He told me, I should have known when he told me, I hadn't slept in three weeks. He's an unusual guy. Yeah. You know what? Uh, over the years, um, there was one film that I thought was BS until a closer investigation revealed it to be a mo more, much more likely, if not absolutely true. And it, it's that um, it's the one from Maine. The Turner video. Yeah. Yeah. Turner, Maine. That one. That's that real. One that, uh, Bill Brock was involved with. Yeah. Uh, he, he was involved in the follow-up on it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was fake because I thought, well, that, too perfect. The thing walks right there. I, the only place it could be seen and and all this other stuff. Until I heard the backstory and heard from the parents and all this other stuff, too, and I realized, oh, oh my gosh, it's it's real. We heard him that night there also. Yeah, heard him that night and the night before with Moneymaker and stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, something like that. It could be a person walking in the woods. I think it was right outside of what, like a trailer park or cabin. No, it was rural. Wasn't yeah, it, was it, real, like, it was, rural house or something right there? Yeah, there's a, a five acre parcel that had been cleared, but completely surrounded by really thick timber. And uh, he was looking back into the timber towards the swampy area, like, you know, a mile away or whatever. And down well, the only yeah. logging where there was. So there you have, like, you know, that's the value of on the ground investigation, you know, not just like boots on the ground in the woods research, but, you know, sighting claim investigation is almost a lost art. Uh, but I mean, this is the value of having things like the regional BFRO network, you know, people who are experienced and try at least to be objective in their analysis of things. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, you just like you remove all the good things from the BFRO website or whatever. But I mean, you have to apply some criteria of, you know, critical thinking to uh, a video like that one. If your witnesses in your environment and everything add up, that's corroborative, you know. Um, mm -hmm. it's not just an anecdote anymore. It's not just a video that you have to like judge, you know, based upon impressions, you know, like, Oh, it looks fake. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you know how it works? Like, have you ever found somebody who's never seen the Patterson film before? And then you say, Oh my God, really? I mean, you're, you must be one of the few on the planet who never has. And then you show them the film and watch them as they're watching it, you know, um, 
the, the, there's two different reactions that people have, you know, one is like, Oh my God, that's real. And the other one is like, that's a man in a suit. And it's like, well, you've only watched it one time and you're already saying it's a man in a suit. But I mean, it works both ways. Uh, you have to really study something to get to the truth. And there's a lot of ways that the human mind can be fooled uh, beyond hoaxing, you know. Self-hoaxing is the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, like that video, I mean, it looks good to me. It's just, it's too much like a person for me to really invest much in it, uh, you know. Yeah, I would. I thought the same thing. It, it looked. It didn't. It didn't move like Pat. Then again, you know, I, I try to. I think uh, a mistake is to compare every Bigfoot video with Patty from the Patterson film. Yeah, because, no doubt. Because she was she was preoccupied. You know, there were two dudes on horses right there. She had. She was trying to get out of the area. I, what if that's not the way they normally walk? And that's yeah. just like I'm getting out of here. Walk. Not quite a run, but I'm getting out of here. Walk. Or, or maybe there are regional variations uh, and adaptations to uh, environments. You know, just like a grizzly bear is a brown bear, and so is a Kodiak bear, and so are the bears you have in Russia and um, Eurasia. They're all basically the same species, and they're not that far from the polar bear, really. And they can mate with each other and produce hybrids. <laughs> But look at the differences that they, that occur within that species. Uh, the the gigantic coastal salmon munching uh, Kodiak, I mean, can be generally like twice as big as your average sort of scrappy ass uh, grizzly bear kicking it in you know, Montana or whatever. You know, those guys have a whole different habitat and lifestyle than um, those guys feeding on those uh, very rich protein rich fat rich uh foods yeah so i'm mean, bigfoot could be the same way but i mean if if what if patty is not real but there are other bigfoots that are real then you've got the whole problem of you've based your whole model of bigfoot on a hoax and yeah although i, I do find it pretty compelling actually very compelling that's some of the better, say, uh, still photographs. Uh, right now, I'm happen to be thinking of the Silver Star photographs. Um, that the the body shape and proportions really, really closely match that of the Patterson Gimlin film. And I guess if Patty's a human, like a, a human in a suit, then the, these are just okay. Other humans match that one, you know. So I guess that argument is taken off the table with that. But I do find it very interesting because I, I don't see ver- I don't see a very I, I see only a superficially human shape versus the uh, the different proportions and the different sizes of various muscles, like the butt muscles, you know, the high shoulders, the conical shaped head. I think it's interesting that some of the better pictures show those same um, proportions. Like in science, you, you want replicability. You, you, if you're going to claim that Patty is real or say the Sierra sounds, for instance, are a good example well, then you've got to find other examples of those occurring in the wild and show that it's a real true trait of the species you're uh, questioning. You know, uh, if Patty's butt is normal, then it should occur on other Bigfoots uh, out there. But I mean, there could be subspecies. There are subspecies of ape and monkeys and so forth. 
So, uh, yeah, but, uh, maybe Bluff Creek is just a super rich area and patties of fat. So, you know, well, it was that time of year and you can see the fat on her, you know, Bill Munns pointed that out. Some people think it was a pregnant one too, because you know, apes aren't supposed to have these big boobs like Patty does. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, there's that theory that there's a, a, a recent birth that it might've occurred, but you know, that that's where we get into that speculative problem once again. Yeah, yeah. And then the other side of that is uh, Bigfoots don't give a damn what we expect them to do or be. Uh, <laughs> especially if they're that good at evading us, you know. Yeah. What, what, what do we think they are? I mean, it's nothing to them. They, they got to know something about us to evade us, right? Yeah. Like, that's one of the arguments for Bigfoot intelligence is that it has it would have to be pretty smart uh, to stay away from humans when all the other animals can't. I mean... Maybe wolverines are pretty evasive, but we still can find them. Uh, you know, um, bears and other animals, it's, you can easily find them. Uh, even like with the mountain gorillas, what are there like? A, or are the pandas, you know, there's like a thousand pandas left in the wild, they say. So why is it that you can just go and find them? Why, why can't you find Bigfoot? There's... Got to be a fundamental difference there, especially if Bigfoot is all over the country, like they say. I mean, it's not just here and there, it's all over the place, all over the world. There's different variations of them. So it's really a hard thing to explain. Yeah. Intelligence, though, would be something. Hey, Strudy, so, uh, what what do people ask you about the most? Like, do you think this is real? Is it Todd Standing's videos or besides PG film? Oh yeah, um, yeah. The classic line is like, "I thought that thing was a fake, um, that man in a suit." But, um, you know, people all, all seem to have their own favorite things. You know, like they'll they'll they're interested in various uh, research groups or or individuals or book authors. So they get really into something like um, whatever it might be, you know, David Politis. So they get really into the Politis trip, you know, and then they, they, they start thinking that all the Bigfoot are these humans. Like if you took all the hair off of the Patterson's film subject, she would look like a, a native American man. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, that's the kind of thing I noticed that uh, people see what they want to see sort of um, the, they, they, there are like preconceptions that people have and uh, that determines what they're willing to believe. Like I find it impossible to believe Tom Todd's standing, uh, but people will argue with you to the ends of the day, you know, screaming and yelling on Facebook or whatever uh, about how Todd standing is this real researcher and he's done all these real things, you know, like I, I just ask a simple question. How do you know that? Like, how do you know that he didn't just go out there with his ghillie suit and then pose in front of the camera to make it look like he's this rough and rugged dude. I think, I think he gets out there. I have no, I have no proof. I think, I think he just recreated what I think, a couple of the videos when he started, 
were things that he saw that he didn't film, so he had it. He filmed them, is what I think happened. Yeah, well, you know that back in the day before the puppets, the Muppet heads. Uh, remember, yeah. we kind of thought that those videos looked good. Uh, the um, the one where it stands up, oh yeah, jumps side. That thing looks pretty darn good to me. Uh, but knowing that it comes from Todd Standing, who's I think a proven liar, a hoaxer, uh, the most shameless hoaxer of them all, you know, because at least Rick Dyer chuckles and laughs about it. You know, um, Todd Standing is still filing lawsuits, you know, trying to get on the news. That's his big deal, you know, and he just got himself on the news again, right? Coincidentally, before the release of his documentary on Netflix. It was sad, though, to see how he kind of boxed uh, Meldrum and Bindernoggle into doing and saying the things that they said. Because um, you could tell, if you know those guys, that the way they were speaking was uh, carefully worded so that it would satisfy Todd standing without going against their scientific background and integrity. You know, I think both of those guys are uh, real scientists, men of integrity. Uh, oh, uh, well, yeah, the, like the late Binder novel that is. But. Oh, I know. I miss John. He's, yeah. He, I miss his presence in the field if nothing else. Awesome. You yeah. can see how Todd standing was almost bullying them to say things, you know, asking leading questions, putting words in their mouth. And then Jeff would say something like, or Binnernoggle, I think it was the one who said, that is, uh, when I look at those videos, they look like, well, very convincing. Like, this is what it would be like to look at a Bigfoot. This is a, <laughs> a very good portrait of a Bigfoot. He even said the word portrait, you know. And Meldrum said almost the same thing, you know, like if I were looking into the eyes of a Bigfoot, this is what it would feel like or, or whatever. I mean, you could tell it carefully worded, I think, uh, to get standing to be satisfied so they could finish whatever their, their scene was for the movie, you know? Yeah. I, I, you know. I, that doesn't make me like question them fundamentally. Um, a lot of people just turned their back on those people, uh, on uh, Jeff and John, because they were in Standing's uh, documentary. Yeah. I thought that was unfortunate. It's like, why? You're kind of cutting off, you know, what um, is it, cutting off they, your nose to spite your face or something? They've come back, though. I mean, everyone knows that Bindernoggle was for real and like the most sincere guy in all of Bigfooting, probably. And, you know, Meldrum is. He, he does, he's like, I mean, the most versatile uh, TV appearance Bigfooter ever. You know, well, he's been on so many bizarre shows. But, I mean, he doesn't ever lie. He speaks very carefully, trying to say things that are true or that are logical and scientific. But also, I mean, he knows that he's on a TV show. He's got to... You know, like, I mean, you guys, you've got to sort of play to the camera a little, right? Yeah, you got to. Sure helps, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's fake, you know, because, like, we've been there, too, where 
you've got these TV producer guys and they go, well, we can't go to Bluff Creek. So why don't you guys just go over somewhere around here? And I'm like, well, that won't be as real or good, you know? And so the next thing is, well, we don't have time or money or inclination to go and do that whole thing. So we're going to go over here to East Fork and record you guys putting up a trail camera. You know, I mean, does that make us hoaxers? I don't know. But like, you know, we were just trying to make a good image for the Bigfoot research and, you know, help these guys make a, a what we were hoping was going to be a decent documentary. Uh, uh, TV is a job, but the um, and, and sometimes there is, you know, like I remember the first time that the we, we did an investigation at the spot. That wasn't the actual film. I, we didn't know about it at first. It was, I think it was that Georgia video where the guy's riding the ATV up the stream and then something crosses the stream. And I'm like pulling my hair out trying to figure like figure out like why are like this doesn't look right. I can't figure out the, the distances. And then I then it comes out that this isn't the real spot. They couldn't go to the real spot. They gosh darn it. Like it all drove me nuts. But um yeah. Todd Standing did that to you guys too. He didn't want to take you to his super secret spot or something. So he he told me like, it would take three days of belly crawling in a ghillie suit to get into the area. And his secret tunnel through the mountain into the hidden lost world of <laughs> Sylvanic. But he's I remember that he's pointing up at some rock and he's saying, like, so the creature was like right there. And it's like, but he just said that it's not the same spot. It's all Good and fine to you know try to do a recreation and a reenactment if you as long as you are clear about it, like those yeah. true crime shows, you know, reenactment, not real blood or whatever. <laughs> it, it's just you don't want to make it so that it deceives the viewer, or like or well, like you guys experienced that season one where the cow or horse or whatever it was was standing in the field. And, yeah, the, they edited, so it made it look like, you know, it just sort of vanished. Mm-hmm. They, were, they edited it like I just quit filming it. Yeah, so I mean that's embarrassing to be part of something where the editors screw you over, um, like they did to us, sorta. You know, like I spent like an hour doing an interview with them, and they used like five seconds of it. You know, and then they they put Ken Gearhart in there. You know, <laughs> he's a cool guy, but like why I'm talking. And then all of a sudden you put Ken Gerhard in there to finish the exact same sentence that I just said. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty weird to do that. But he was like their main star on the show, I guess, him and a couple other people on that in search of monsters thing. That was I mean, that was just weird. They didn't tell us that they were going to go all woo woo at the end either. I never saw it. Yeah, luckily I didn't see it either. I, I I don't tolerate Bigfoot TV very well. There was something like they they were talking about the Yeti in the Himalayas, and they they said, "What about portals?" Well, that maybe that explains how Yeti got over to North America. It just went through a portal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like like the mastodons and the um, and the horses. They went through portals as well, probably. It just makes sense. Why did I I even try? You know, I talked with these guys for hours and we did all this planning to set it up and make it a real thing. We were going to take them to the film site 
and camp out at Laos camp and do a real thing. And then I guess they just wimped out because they didn't want to carry their cameras down the hill for a mile. Uh, well, you may have noticed that television is a shallow, superficial medium. Yeah. But I defend you guys all the time. Hey, we defend you all the time, too. Uh, thanks. It's a <laughs> mutual affection, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, just honestly speaking, I, I'm not defending you guys because you're my friends. I'll defend you guys because it's true. And I won't lie to save a friend's ass. You know, I'll try to encourage that friend to do better or point out their mistakes if they make them, you know. Uh, and too often in the Bigfoot world, that's not how it is. Uh, but, you know, I'll tell them, you know, Bobo is one of the smartest guys you could ever meet. And he knows more about Bigfoot than just about anybody. Uh, but they think, well, because they show you guys in a certain way on TV, that that's how you are in real life, or that's how you are in real field research. But it's not necessarily so. And, uh, you know, I don't think the show was scripted. Do you? I mean, uh, <laughs> no, they, they tried to get us to say stuff and we wouldn't. I mean, I've been there and watched <laughs> you guys make the show and it wasn't scripted. Uh, no. The closest thing I ever saw to a script was when we were with RPG at the uh, Bigfoot restaurant. And he had like a, a sort of sheet of paper. I think it was graph paper. And it had just kind of had like various days and like a list of a few things that he wanted to do, like go to museum, you know, <laughs> and, um, a few notes, like things that he thought might be important. I mean, that's the script, you know, just like, uh, Bobcat Goldthwait's movie Willow Creek was improvised. I mean, there was no script. There was a, a summary that he, he wrote up and, and, he was director, so he would guide them a little bit in the scenes. Say and act. <laughs> well, I told him, you know, I'm not acting. I'm not going to go on any script. You know, I'm. You're going to have to make me a member of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, if if so, and pay me something. But uh, you know, he said, "Oh no, just talk like you normally do." I don't have a script, <laughs> and so that whole scene that I'm in in that movie is just me talking like. Uh, Bryce Johnson uh, did a great job. You know, he, he he just talked like he was a normal Bigfoot freak, you know, uh, coming into my store. And it was just like that. It was totally normal without any exaggeration at all. How much did he know when, before he did the movie? Because I know he got really into it after the movie. How much did he know when he got up there? I, I, I know he was into it, but was he really into it? Um, I think not really into it like he is now. I mean, he's got a, it's not just he's on TV show because uh, he's an actor by profession. I mean, I've seen him in like CSI or whatever, you know, he's. Uh, uh, he was Alexi, in the Gilmore Girls, too. And, and Alexi Gilmore is co-star. She was in some other TV show like CSI. I forget now, but but, you know, it, it's like. uh he was sort of into Bigfoot like we, like I was, you know, kind of when he was growing up, he liked Bigfoot and was interested in it. And then it kind of grows on you for various reasons, you know, like, why am I a Bigfoot researcher? How the heck did that happen? You know, I yeah. thought I was a book, a bookseller and a 
that's what I was doing. And I was going to write like poems and novels and things. And now, now instead, if I think about writing books, it's like, well, there's that Bigfoot book and this Bigfoot book and this book about critical thinking and logic in the paranormal. You know, how did that happen? I don't know. Plan on, plan on writing novels and poems and you end up fighting online. <laughs> I know, yeah, wasting wasting my potential on Facebook groups. Well, maybe I'll put it in a book form someday and you'll be recognized for your genius. Oh, yeah. I know, like in the time when I first met Politis in my store, and I didn't even know who he was, and he just said he was a traveling, a retired cop looking into things that he always was interested in. Didn't even tell me he was a Bigfoot researcher. I didn't even know until I saw his book. You know, I was like, oh, that guy. Um, but, you know, in the time when I met him, I was talk talking about doing a book on Native American ethnology, eth ethnography of Bigfoot or something like that. And he kind of liked the idea. Maybe he stole it from me. I don't know. But, you know, since then, he's written three Bigfoot books or two that he wrote and one that he edited. And then he edited a bunch of other stuff and he wrote all those missing books that he put out. So I kind of look at him and think he's a pretty productive dude. Oh, he's like, cool. I, I should do something like that, you know, but I mean, I, maybe I'm just lazy. I don't know. It's, it's so much easier for me to think and talk than it is to sit down and write, you know, writing is hard work. It is. Uh, I mean, I've been told I'm good at it, but, you know, I like it when it's casual. I don't like uh, anything that reminds me of when I was in, like, uh, junior high school or whatever, and I had to write some dumb paper. You know, I hate that. I'd rather be spontaneous and, you know, roll with what's happening in the, in the world, you know, um, rather than some artificial thing. Like, a book is artificial. You have to plan it all out and put it all together and take a position and rally your facts together. And I don't know, it gets tedious. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work, but I, I mean, I, maybe I have a short attention span. I'm, I'm too curious about everything to settle down into just one thing. I hear that. That's why we got beyond on the name of our show, Bigfoot and beyond. Yeah. We can do anything yeah. we want. That's great. Yeah, I think um, you guys should, too, if you want to continue in the Bigfoot world. That's great. But I think you both have potential to do other things, too. But, you know, people are always going to know you for the Bigfoot part of your life. I mean, finding Bigfoot in some ways was kind of the um, in search of for the next generation, I think. And for me, Letter Demoy is, you know, Spock and, and in search of. Man, that would have been, you know, can you imagine if you guys had a narrator like Leonard Nimoy? Oh God! <laughs> Instead of moneymaker, like taking over all of the prime narration roles, because you know, because he was under contract, that he was free, and he lived in L.A., so he could drive there. Like when they had us, they had to fly us down there, so they. So that's why Matt did all the narration, and he's got a good voice. No, Matt is fine. It's just that Matt is Matt. You know, like uh, it would have been better almost better if you had like an objective narrator you look at what moneymaker's doing now <laughs> <laughs> with the leonard uh, nimoy voice it would have been awesome classic i, I love I, I love it when that matt is doing that though because I, I watched an episode a couple weeks ago 
and I knew I, I forget which one it was, but one of the witnesses, I knew that Matt didn't believe him. And then I think it was after a commercial break and, and these, and now we're going to continue the, whatever investigate or whatever, whatever he said, I don't even remember what he said. All I got from it was the spite in his voice come, <laughs> come, hiss, come hissing through because I think he knew that he was talking about this guy or whatever. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, these are the pleasurable things of finding Bigfoot for me now. Oh yeah, I, when I watch it, I laugh my ass off. Yeah, I've I've certainly heard a lot of your guys' stories around the campfire. You guys definitely had like a Scooby Doo sort of division among you. Like, who's you know, who's whom in the Scooby Crew? It gave a certain charm to the show that. Um, it, your personality dis differences were exaggerated a little and uh, it stands really in distinction to that other new show where the people on it are pretty boring, you know, a lot of that stuff's editing too, you know, and doing what they want, you know, they want you to hit certain points or whatever. So it's, you can never just blame the, the cast. Yeah. Do they use that annoying term? Like the beats, like they do in, Movie production. Yeah. Oh God, I hate that. <laughs> I didn't like that term too much either. Yeah, I, I don't. The way they talk about making movies is like you don't ever want to watch them again because you've seen too much of how they're made. It's like That's watching what, sausage get made. Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking. You know, like, oh man, you know. It was so much more charming when I didn't know uh, these facts of life that I've now learned. That's know? why I don't watch any Bigfoot TV. People ask me all the time in the museum, like, hey, have you seen this show or that show? And I go, no, if it's on TV or YouTube, I have not seen it. And I am very unlikely to see it just because TV, Bigfoot TV is now spoiled for me forever. Because I know what I know what they tried to make us do and we refused. And I know that... Uh, Perhaps other people wouldn't be so, you know, hard to work with as we were. <laughs> you guys held your own pretty well against uh, the tidal forces of the entertainment business. Well, shoot, Strudy, that was awesome. You came on tonight. Thanks for having me. You guys rock. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone, and keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 